0: You walk off the court, you and Ben are talking. Do you sort of attempt to diagnose what what went wrong, how you should have played it differently? What uh, oh, there,
1: there's no talking, Tom. There's no chance. <laughs> <laughs> there's no talking.
0: Uh, at that point, it's more like a funeral.
2: Uh, but uh, you can't just go out and swing for the fences without a legitimate understanding of when and where you should attack. Because I think that it's thrown around a lot. Oh, you have to play aggressive to beat Ben and Colin. And I think that's pretty clear. If you're gonna try to beat us in a dinking war, I think that you're gonna die a very slow death. But yeah, it's a very serious
1: answer that it's- I don't appreciate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about this sort of
0: thing. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's keep going with that. Was it Nationals where you took that nut shot?
1: Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, to he hit me up. He said Ben and Colin aren't playing. He said the kids aren't playing. I forgot who else he said wasn't playing. He's like, You wanna play? Riley's know. not playing. James is out with injury, so there there's a pretty good, uh sparse field. There or, we go. More sparse. So how does it feel? So that means Wait wait, you did this didn't you do this last year? Where or you played like one extra tournament, one additional tournament than Ben. So now you get to be number one player in the world in in the ranking.
0: <laughs> well,
2: we would I would have to do well enough to surpass him, which I can't because he won with Matt in Kansas City, which is a higher tier tournament than Minnesota.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. All right. So you
2: got to
0: get on the grind.
1: You got to get on a couple <laughs> extra
0: tournaments again. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're live, so we're going to use that and we're going to roll in. But we're trying something different today. Uh, we're going to start doing like formal intros. I saw it on uh, Shannon Sharp's podcast. I really liked it with Johnny Manziel. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. So this is going to be the first one so that people who tune in and haven't watched the show before... Or don't know Colin, which is not many people will have a good background on who he is. So, Colin Johns is a former tennis pro turned pickleball professional who made his pickleball debut in 2018. He is currently ranked number two in men's doubles, number 26 in mixed doubles on the PPA Tour, and formerly ranked, people don't, not many people know this, in the top 10 of men's singles. He is the brother of number one ranked men's doubles, mixed doubles, and men's singles player Ben Johns. Together, they have won over 25 men's doubles titles to date. His sister, Hannah Johns, is a broadcast host and commentator for the PPA Tour. Colin is also the co-owner and founder of Pickleball 360, an instructional video-based business, and a co-founder of the mobile coaching platform, My Pickleball Coach. It's his third time on the show. He's one of the most requested guests. So, Colin, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. With that intro, it sounds like something out of The Godfather. Like, it's just <laughs> how many more Johns' can we get in yeah. the sport of pickleball?
0: <laughs> um, did I nail it? Is there anything else you would add in there?
2: I mean, I think that's uh, pretty concise and pretty good there.
1: Former world or, number one doubles player.
2: Former world number one, yes. Yeah. Right. Then regained his rightful spot at the top when I uh,
0: injured my Achilles last year. Yeah, would you mess with him about that, though? I would all the time. I would, like, print that out and put it in his room. It's not really something that uh, we talk about. He didn't talk about it
2: when I was number one. I don't talk about it when I lost the spot. It's just not really. uh, It doesn't matter to us. If we're one and two, that means we're the top team, and that's what's important. It's
1: a cute answer. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't have a brother, but I can't imagine it would go down like that. No, probably
2: wouldn't with most, but uh,
0: (laughs) I can say that uh, it's all friendly uh cool all right well you open to playing uh, a little word association word association this could get very interesting so i'll give a word you don't give a one word answer instead give us the first thought that comes to mind the first
2: thought that comes to mind cool like, how dangerous is this game like where, where are we going with this you Just can take it wherever you want
1: <laughs> i mean i'd say go risky go risky <laughs> well yeah. that's what zane would do what would Altoff do also go risky <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, all right ready all right mesa Core visibility. Deckle. (laughs) Big. Backhand slide. Uh, Matt Wright. You can give like a phrase if you want to. So like you have a thought or a story. Delamination. Carbon. Net cords. (laughs) Infuriating. (laughs) Ben. Uh, The best. Riley. (laughs) The best friend? <laughs> the not best friend. Major League Pickleball? Uh, entertaining. Table tennis? Um, fun. Pickleball influencers? Uh, variety. <laughs> Tim Nelson? Legend. U.S. Open? Uh, OG Tournament. Good job, Colin. Very, very well done. First ever.
2: I liked that. Yeah, that was that was good. I feel <laughs> like I feel like you should have somebody on that will be a little bit more risky than that. Yeah, <laughs> I love the curveball there in the middle. Yeah, you had to help me out. You just start laughing. Um, I want to know what your real thought was
1: <laughs> when that. first Yeah, came
2: up. I'm sure people would pay money to uh, to know the real thought there. <laughs>
0: Uh, all
1: right, well, before we jump on... How much on, money is it? Because we can, we can negotiate this
2: right now. I mean, depending on how many fines I get for uh, cursing, uh, we can take those away. And, 20 bucks? Yeah, it's 20 bucks is not that much. 20 bucks is
1: 20 bucks? Yeah. It's for a good cause. Yeah. Anyway.
2: It is for a good cause.
0: All right, you walked in here and said, right before you came in, you got some news.
2: Yes, actually, literally in the the past hour, there have some, been some developments and this is the way it goes in pickleball, where you know things are always moving. Uh, I did not plan to play Minnesota; um, it's always cold there. I don't love the conditions. Um, but James got injured at the last tournament, and uh, Matt texted me this morning and asked if I would be interested in playing with him in that tournament and also taking over James's normal mix partner uh, Anna Bright as well. So obviously, that's a pretty tantalizing offer. Um, you get to go and play a pickleball tournament for a few days with two of the best players in the game, and you know just. To change it up, something fun. Um, certainly, it's been a while since I've had um, that high-ranked a mixed partner, so I think that I might be looking forward to, to playing with Anna as, as much or more than playing with Matt. And uh, Matt and I have gotten on really well over the years, um, and I think that it's just going to be a
0: lot of fun to, to change it up and
2: uh, do something different.
0: Cool. I like it. We've got some news, too. That was breaking right before we we hopped on here. So by the time this airs, which will be Friday, I'm sure this will have circulated, There may be um, a contract signed, but as of now, it sounds like the Major League Pickleball board approved the merger last night, which was the biggest sticking point, the discrepancy in terms of philosophies amongst the owners, and it's likely going to uh, an owner's vote this afternoon. So the board approved, so then the owner's vote to essentially ratify it right do we know what majority they need to get is it just a simple majority or do i don't mean? know it's a good question from
1: i mean this is a little while ago so things could have changed like i think it was a just an outright majority and i think there's 20 eligible voting teams so they need 11 of the 20 teams to to vote in favor of something like this that's how i understood it at the well, end what, of what
2: are the other four teams that don't get a vote the <laughs> other
1: four teams would be the like the vibe expansion oh. teams um, cause there was, yeah, there was uh, something to do with like last year's, uh, failed merger, I guess, or whatever that was, 2022's merger. There are basically a couple of teams like Utah Black Diamonds that are owned by, you know, the Pardo family that don't get a vote in this. Hmm. At least that's how it was in December. I'm somewhat out of the loop at this point. So. It, would, it would be pretty funny to have this team voting too because considering that it's a merge
2: with the PPA and the Pardes right. are definitely owners of the PPA. Yeah. It would be funny. To, hey, do you want to vote for or against? Does the deal sound good from your perspective or not?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't... I'm not super up to date, so that's a that's a good update. I mean, I think we're we're running up against uh, against some deadlines here to get to get paid. So uh, yeah, the, the major that. league pickleball players
2: I know have been uh, waiting a while. Mm-hmm. You being one of them to uh, to receive payment. So obviously, it would be great to get this all through and get things moving, get people paid, and
0: move forward. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Is that a conversation that players are having? Like, when the hell are we going to get paid? What do we do?
2: Well, certainly you hear about it in the player tent from from every now and then. It's, uh, you know, some players don't have an unlimited budget depending on their, their sponsorship or the job that they work outside of pickleball. So uh, for some people, it, it becomes a more pressing issue as time goes along for obvious reasons. So um, you certainly hope for their sake that they get paid soon.
0: Yeah, interesting. All right, well, we haven't had a development in a while. We'll see if they finally close this thing. Um, let's do uh, something a little bit different. So we've had you on before. We haven't really talked about like your background. And so I want to kind of take it back to Maryland and ask, what was it like growing up in the John's household? I know you had a ton of siblings. I believe you were all homeschooled. Yeah. What was that environment like? Yeah, that's definitely a
2: real throwback all the way to childhood. Uh, (laughs) I would say that we had a very unique upbringing, um, being homeschooled our whole lives. And we had six kids in the house at that time. Um, I'm one of seven, but my little sister didn't arrive until 13 years after my youngest sister. So she came after I was out of the house, and most of us were out of the house. So um, it was mostly just the six of us. And for those of you who don't know, um, we're all two years apart. So when I was 10, I had eight-year-old um, sister, Hannah, uh Lily was six, Ben would have been four, and then my sister would have been two and a baby. So um, there's a pretty ordered spread there, um, which makes a lot of fun. You have sisters, you have a brother. Uh, ben being my only brother, we spent a lot of time uh, together playing out in the, the yard, playing some backyard wiffle ball or just playing really anything, um, whether it was video games. And, and that's what sort of uh, set the table for, for later on for sports. And we didn't know at the time, but uh, pickleball. Um, because he was six years younger than me, he was always trying to play catch-up with me and my friends, which was always fun to include him. Um, but I think that made him tougher, and that's uh, that's part of the reason uh, he turned into the uh, the person, the player that he is today. Um, yeah. But uh, the sisters played a really big part as well. They were always very supportive of um whatever ben and i were doing um they would sit at my baseball games for hours on end so they were real troopers in that sense and they grew up playing some sports as well Um, softball a little bit of tennis and then they did girly stuff with irish dance and and all that sort of stuff so yes of course the uh the john's family definitely uh we socialized but it wasn't in the normal sense of school we did did it through sports and uh, other activities
1: Right. So your sisters would come watch you play? Like your whole family would show up to these baseball games and whatnot? Yep. Yeah, for the longest time, pretty much everyone turned up to the baseball
2: games. And that was when we were all a little bit younger and played baseball as well. And then later on, they would come to the tennis tournament some of the time. Um, so I definitely uh, appreciate all those times looking back where you're just little sisters. You're like, do we really have to go to another baseball tournament this weekend and just sit in the sun? And uh, definitely uh, they were good sisters yeah they're troopers not that they had much of a choice but (laughs) so out of curiosity were you ever hit by like a baseball oh yeah (laughs) yeah definitely it's not a great feeling especially compared to a pickleball pickleball is (laughs) small potatoes compared to a ball that's coming fast it's a lot heavier Uh, unfortunately it didn't happen too many times but uh, definitely something that happens once in a while that is is not something that I regard as a as a good memory
1: so what was the, uh, you know, we've seen the reaction to getting hit from a, from a pickleball. <laughs> uh, what's the reaction to getting hit
2: by a baseball? I would say in that it's more shock and to make sure that you're physically okay. Um, if it hits you in a bad spot and it's heavy enough ball to where it can do some damage, you, you obviously have to wear a helmet. Um, some players protect their shin or their elbow, so... Just taking a second, shake it off, make sure you're okay, and you're just a little shocked that it happened. Rather than in pickleball, you kind of know it's going to happen from time to time; it's just part of the game, um, and it's less about it being dangerous as it being
1: very annoying. Sure, sure. So it's less annoying in baseball; it hurts more. But like, yeah. you still throw your helmet and stuff, or no, no, no. that didn't happen. Okay, right, just, I'm just trying to get a you, sense.
2: You're and... just trying to take a second to to get your bearings, make sure everything's all right, and then you move on. That's a very serious answer that I don't it's... appreciate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about this sort of thing. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's keep going with that. Was it Nationals where you took that nut shot?
2: No,
1: the famous
2: nut shot was in Delray. It was actually an APP tournament. I want to say it was 2021. And it was the very first point of the gold medal match. <laughs> Full stadium of people, live stream, we're playing Pat and Jay. And for the record, Ben's the one who popped the ball up. He hit it nice and high to Pat Smith's forehand. And for those of you who have never seen Pat Smith, he's a very burly German gentleman that can swing very hard at the ball. And he said it was, quote, the cleanest forehand I hit of the whole tournament. And it hit me directly in the lower extremities, which did not feel good. And I spent at least 10 minutes on the ground. (laughs) It was not a great way to start a gold medal match, um, but we did come back and win the match, so. Yeah, it did
1: cost us the first game. I was <laughs> I was hurting. Were you just in, were you in shambles for the rest of the game or what? How did that? How did the I, rest of that like play out?
2: Well, I told Ben that for laughing at me while I was on the ground, yeah, as any brother would be, um, he better step up and play better because I'm hurting. You popped up the ball. You're responsible for this, and on top of that, you're laughing at me. You better actually bring it.
1: Did he? So he didn't bring it well enough in game one. In
2: game one, it wasn't enough. But after that, we rolled. I think it was like four and four. So. He did a good job.
1: All right. We'll take it. Were you in coming out of the, the winner's side too? So you had a little cushion?
2: We were. Yeah. yeah. Double elimination in those days. I think we had beaten Steve and Deckel in the winner's bracket final. And then Pat and Jay had beaten them in the bronze
0: to get to us. So mm-hmm. yeah, we would have still had a game to 15. Well, you're going you're gonna to see that clip again because we're definitely oh. clipping that. <laughs> <laughs> the world doesn't need to see that. Oh,
2: no. They do. Does. They most definitely do. I may or may not have that one saved in my phone. <laughs> just to remember what not to do yeah. pat teases me he's like you, you better check uh protect those mcnuggets <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when you, you know, play me so you gotta these, do the accent now these days de- well i can't do the Smith <laughs> accent it's half kiwi half german with a little bit of english thrown in but uh i know now to keep the paddle up and in front of the important things maybe just the paddle is down well it's down it's not up it's more down you are correct there we normally go normally people protect the face i protect
1: so are you gonna bring back, bring back like the helmet or the cup or any of that stuff from the baseball days? I mean you gotta start to think about it with as much as uh people are pegging these days.
2: It's just uh it's getting a little out of control. We might need to at least bring some protective eyewear in all seriousness, but uh yeah, why not show up with a cup and a helmet? I think you can just stay in there you have no fear of getting hit. I mean, I recommended a Deckle on the daily there we
1: go. <laughs> I mean, it would send a message if somebody showed up in a full helmet like cup, all that, like a bunch of padding on, be like, yeah, people are hitting the ball hard. Now it is interesting, Mesa, we saw a lot more people with with eyewear.
2: Yes. And I can say in Mesa, this last tournament was the first professional match I've ever played an entire match with protective eyewear on. Oh, did you? And it was in my second round of mixed. We were playing outside and it's very bright. It's hard to see. So I have a pair of glasses that are slightly tinted. So it was also because I wanted it to be less bright but I also have been really trying to get used to wearing protective eyewear. So for the past couple months, I've pretty much been wearing protective eyewear in every single practice uh, just to try to get accustomed to it. And I had not done it in a tournament because I still feel like I'm not 100% used to it. I feel like it still affects my vision just a little bit. Um, But I wanted to see if I could do it for a match, uh, particularly, particularly because it was going to help in that bright sunlight. And I was able to do it. It didn't really seem to affect me, so... I'm hopeful to be able to wear protective eyewear all the time at some point. And you look at somebody like Lee. I was talking to her mom about it, and obviously hers are a prescription, but she said that it doesn't affect Lee at this point. She's been wearing them for so long that um, it would be actually worse for her to not wear the glasses and wear contacts. So clearly you can get used to it. It's just a matter of time. Um, So I'm really trying to do that in practice just because of the scare that I had at Nationals especially uh, where Ben deflected the ball off his paddle into – my temple it missed my eyes but in a different case scenario that could have been really bad and the only place you can get really hurt by a pickleball is directly in the eye so protective eyewear just protects you and you feel safer and when I've been wearing them in practice I just feel a sense of security that I don't have um, when I'm not wearing them
3: Hmm.
1: yeah that's fair you can stand in there and flinch a little bit less too like if you're not worried about getting hit anywhere yeah, obviously if you get hit in the face, it's not fun, but you're not going to be seriously
2: hurt. The only place would be the eyes. We're
0: going to get you a sponsorship with uh, like Raya Eyewear
2: or something like that. I'll work on that for you. Well, YOLA is actually investigating that space, um, so we've been testing some prototypes, so we're hopeful that we can uh, have something that
0: Ben and I both like very soon. Interesting. What don't, what don't they do? You know, um, they do everything. What, what, uh, what pisses you off more, uh, Net cord that lands in? Or getting body bagged?
2: And that cord that lands in. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so annoying, especially if they're pulling the trigger from somewhere they really shouldn't be. Like, if someone just swings as hard as they can from midcourt when the ball's in their shoelaces and then it clips the top of the tape and goes right over your paddle, like, they deserve to lose the point and they win the point. They get a winner out of it. That just infuriates me. Versus getting body bagged, honestly, getting body bagged is part of the game. As long as you're not head hunting and you're trying to hit somebody above the shoulders, that's not cool. As long as you're going for the body, at the pro level, it's fair game. Mm-hmm. Like, you understand that. And you have to be able to read people's attacks and have the skill of getting out of the way. Um, I don't think that it should turn into dodgeball, per se, but it is part of the game, and you have to accept it. And sometimes you're going to get hit. So be it.
0: Mm-hmm. What are your views on that being, like, a low-percentage shot versus, like— going for it and... i
2: mean i have mixed feelings about it like i said you can't go headhunting, that's not cool but as far as legitimate play depending on who you're playing it's something you really need to implement if you look at somebody like Deckel, i mean we got to pick on Deckel after that podcast <laughs> absolutely interview. uh he's a big guy he likes to stand in and he doesn't try to leave a lot of outballs um so when you know that ahead of time you got a nice big target and it's very hard to catch up to the ball every time. And Dekel might say that he can catch up with his backhand counter to almost everything. Um, but it is pretty difficult. It makes the shot quite difficult. Um, so you have to be aware when you're playing somebody like that because maybe he leaves it or maybe he gets a hold of the counter anyway. But the threat of that shot really makes the other shots that much better. Um, so I do think it's a legitimate play. It can be a higher risk shot if you're playing somebody who leaves out balls really well. Um, somebody who's smaller in stature. I remember Adam Stone. I can't remember if that guy ever got hit because he's smaller. He was good at reading. Squirrely. He was squirrely. He was so hard to hit. (laughs) And uh, it would be annoying because you'd hit what you thought was a good attack and he just kind of ducked down and the ball would go out. And uh, if you're playing somebody like that, you can't really go body bagging as much. Yeah. And I like to think I read people's paddles pretty well to where I can leave a lot of those balls and not get bagged as much. Um, certainly, stature has a lot to do with it. If you're playing Eric Lang, that's a much bigger target. Jay Devillier, bigger target. So those guys are more the targets of the body bags,
0: um, but it does make for interesting viewing at times. Yeah, no, definitely does. Okay, I saw on, I don't know if we talked about it on our podcast or I saw it from a clip of another podcast, but you talked about going back to your childhood. You guys had uh, a ping-pong table. In the basement, up against a wall, in a peculiar, peculiar way, and you were talking about how the positioning of that table forced either I think you and Ben to hit certain like uh, style of shot that translated into a shot you guys used in pickleball.
2: Yeah, so we had a ping pong table in our basement. I think it might have been on this podcast that we talked about it at right?
0: one point. Um,
2: but to reiterate again, we had the ping pong table in our basement where a bookcase was up against one side of the table on the far side. Um, so basically a right-hander's backhand side. And traditionally in table tennis, the forehand is the more dominant shot. You're going to be more aggressive with it. And you would run around and move to your backhand side to hit forehands. Um, but because the bookcase was there, it got in the way. And as the older brother, I would make Ben take the bad side. I would say, you're going to go over there on the bookcase side, and what he had to do to adjust was to hit more backhands. And not that it necessarily taught him the backhand technique, but it did force him to hit more backhands simply because he was obstructed by that bookcase. Oh. Um, so we have a good picture of it, and actually, I think the picture of it, the bookcase is moved further away than it used to be. It actually used to be closer than that, but I think that... Had that bookcase not been there, it's quite possible that Ben would have played a more dominant forehand game and not developed the backhand role that he now uses to great effect on the pickleball court. So that's why a lot of people really enjoy that story.
1: Interesting. What do Clip you? Clip th- that. What do you think was? Uh, what do you think was more formative in your pickleball uh, skill: your time playing tennis or your time playing ping pong?
2: I think they both have distinct benefits. I don't think that I would be the player or Ben would be the player without both of those sports. I think that as of right now, if I could pick any two background sports to create the perfect player, I would have to choose tennis and table tennis and merge those two. Um, of course, we haven't seen other combinations, whether it be badminton, etc., but I think those together hold a lot of value. Um, I would have to pick tennis as the more important one just because of the racket skills you develop Um, The overall stroke production of something like ground strokes and just general coordination, vision, moving with your partner, etc., you can't really substitute the skills that you gain from tennis. If you look at somebody like Jack Sock, um, the guy's an amazing athlete. He's got great racket skills from tennis. Um, And clearly they translate well to a pickleball court or can translate well. I do think those are enhanced by other skills that you can acquire from table tennis. So something like the stroke production of rolls, very similar to table tennis. Um, You have a paddle um, and pickleball similar, more similar to a table tennis paddle than a tennis racket. And something as simple as recognizing spin and knowing how it affects the ball on your paddle face. That came relatively natural uh, to me and Ben because of the table tennis background. And we didn't even really think about it. Oh, if you receive slice, you're going to get more topspin. And here's the adjustment, adjustment you should make. Um, so people coming from tennis may or may not quite grasp that in the same way. And I do think that people are getting educated more in the pickleball sense where a tennis player comes in and, and they start to get to know that just by playing pickleball. But
1: I do think that table tennis was very valuable as well. Yeah, as it comes to as it pertains to like the slice, I didn't know that coming from tennis. Really, like yeah. you do kind of get taught a little bit, hit up a little bit more on slices in tennis, but I never really knew the the why, and it also didn't impact things a ton. Yes, but then now here with with pickleball paddles, if somebody slices it to you, you basically can just kind of hit straight up. Yeah, like you you can really really. Uh, go after it as a result of it.
2: Yeah, and you've seen the slice returns almost disappear at this point, where you just don't want to give them that much backspin with as much topspin as they can create on a roll drop or a drive. And before, if you look back three, four years ago, the slice return was probably the preferred return. I can remember when Ben would almost always slice his backhand. Matt Wright had a pretty heavy slice. Wes Gabriel's then as a throwback, those were all heavy slice returns that were hard to control because you didn't have the same sort of spin potential on the paddles. Um, so you couldn't use the spin against them as much. Um, but yeah, in tennis, you you would hardly ever apply that concept. The only time I could really think of applying it on a tennis court would be if you're stepping into a topspin shot that's coming at you and cutting down on the ball for a drop shot, and you're getting the ball to spin back towards you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. That's the only time I could really think where it would really work to your benefit. Otherwise, the
1: amount of spin you can get from the strings just overwhelms basically anything else. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? Like, is what benefits are there of of table tennis versus tennis? And I know you went into that a little bit, but I'm talking specifically like you know tennis. You obviously have the ground strokes, the moving with the partners. But table tennis, you have the the backhand roll shot. Yeah. Like, are there any other su- specific shots that that you think table tennis is very helpful for? Table tennis,
2: I think the top few benefits would be, like I said, the rolls. So not just the backhand roll, but also the topspin roll and the orientation of the hand when it contacts the ball. So to keep the ball in on a table tennis table, you really need to close your paddle face more. It's almost completely closed on some shots in order to get the ball down enough to make the table. And if you account for the height of the table and the height of the net, the net is actually the same exact height as
0: a pickleball uh, court.
1: And Interesting. Then, I didn't
2: know that. And then also if you stand right at the end of a pickleball... Hold on.
0: I mean, it, the You're saying proportionally? Proportionally. The...
2: So it's something called counter height, which is quite common across many things. But when you account for the height of the table, the height of the net, it's the same height in inches as a pickleball net off the ground. And get this, the same thing is true if you stand at the back of a ping pong table and you don't reach over the table. If you make contact right... At that length, your distance to the net is almost identical if you're standing behind the kitchen line and reaching forward into the kitchen if you're relatively tall. So as long as your wingspan is pretty good, somebody like Ben is hitting his backhand roll from the exact same distance
0: to the net as he would be on a ping pong table, give or take. I mean, to just have that in your back pocket is like a throwout fact? Yes, it's,
2: it's something I've given some thought to, <laughs> but clearly there are some... Very big similarities um, between pickleball and table tennis. I think that's the single biggest one. Um, So the stroke production, because of all those facts, are going to be quite similar. And in table tennis, spin is, I'm not going to say it's everything, but it's so, so important. Like, if you could generate just a little bit more spin, that can be the difference maker. In pickleball, I view it a little bit differently. It's that spin is such a commodity in the sense that it's hard to generate it because of the equipment that you're playing with. Even the carbon fiber paddles that we play with now, um, trying to hit a smooth plastic ball with lots of spin is difficult. Um, You can only get so much of it. So if somebody gives you an opportunity to create more, like a slice, you really want to take advantage of that because now that means you can get just a few more RPMs on the ball, which is already hard enough to do, and somebody's just giving it to you. um, That's a massive advantage. So that would be the other thing that I already mentioned that I think table tennis really helped us understand is when a particular spin comes at you. And that applies to backspin, topspin, and side spin. Um, if you think about the way the ball checks when it's delivered to you based on a particular angle, that's something that can also be used on a pickleball court. So if the ball's being hit to you from your left and then you hold the paddle flat, where's the ball going to rebound to? It's going to rebound more to your right. So Just knowing the angles of the spin, the paddle, where you want to put the ball, it's all very similar. And when you have that familiarity, um, not to mention the great reflexes you need um, when you play table tennis, you can transfer that so easily to um,
0: pickleball. When you you and Ben are hanging out, do you guys like talk about this stuff? (laughs) I wouldn't say that we talk about it on the regular, but certainly we bounce
2: ideas off each other. I would say I'm probably more active about bringing it up in the first place. Um, but Ben always likes to discuss it, whether it's a new shot or a new strategy or just experimenting. Um, Ben was the one that was experimenting with different shots before I even started pickleball. And he's like, Oh, I, I like this shot that somebody hit. And when it was like, Oh, Marson was trying this or, you know, Aspen Curran was trying that. And I really liked that shot. And I kind of wanted to, to try it and mimic it and, um, he called it Frankensteining, so he's been doing that for a long, long time, um, trying out different shots, and you see it even now. His uh, his two-handed backhand looks a heck of a lot like James Ignatowicz's backhand, and uh, that's definitely something that he looked at what James had, and he's like, I think I could make this work for me, and I think that's something that we've both done over the years that has been beneficial, kind of keeps the ideas flowing, and definitely makes for some good conversations. Okay, it's then you're probably... To,
1: well, I saw him I, I saw him doing... I saw Ben doing the some Rileys for a little while, like lifting up that... Oh, that, the, like, the, elbow that, the elbow raise? Elbow raise. He, he's gone away from that recently. Yes. <laughs> he yeah. hasn't... You can remember when he used to do that, though. And
2: I don't know why it's so effective, but... Wait, fla- talk about that. Break down what, what you're talking about. So when Riley pulls off the bounce, or sometimes he fakes it, he will raise up his left elbow a little bit. So sort of flapping it up like he's doing the chicken dance. Mm-hmm. And... For whatever reason, it's deceptive and it fools a lot of people. They're not really sure what he's about to do and obviously, it only has so much to do with the actual shot he's about to hit, but it's almost like a shiny object. Hey, look over here while I hit the shot into your body, and a lot of people can't pick up the ball very well as somebody who's played in front of him for years. I can tell you that it takes him getting used to um so there was a time when Ben would experiment with that and he did comment that it seems to get people. I don't know why it is, but it does seem to get people more often than not.
1: I think it gets people because they expect that it's going to do something. Yes. But if you take that out of your mind that it actually doesn't do anything, yeah, you're good. But it works. It does work. Um, anything you're experimenting with? Anything that you're trying to emulate from another player? Oh, there are lots of things that uh, I
2: wish that I had or that I start to emulate uh the Annalie two handed inside out roll is something that I'd love to have. So th- So
1: backhand inside out roll.
2: So as a dink, when she's playing with Ben and Ben when he rarely doesn't take a middle ball, she has this nasty two hand backhand roll inside out, which I just don't have that shot. I would love to have that shot. I've experimented a little bit with it. I'm not anywhere close to as good as she is with it, but it's something that I feel like would benefit me in certain situations, and certainly if I'm playing mixed from the right, it could be a very beneficial shot. You see people like James O'Reilly use it from that side to great effect. Um, so that was one that I was experimenting with more last year, um, among other shots. I think that it just it sort of keeps everything fresh when you're working on a new shot, and if somebody does something particularly well, I think that you're well served by starting to imitate it a little bit and putting your own spin on it. It doesn't have to look exactly the same, but a lot of times you can learn something from the other players that do a shot particularly well.
0: Hmm. All right, talking about like <clears throat> shot types, RPMs, how you can manipulate the ball. What are you how are you feeling about the new Vulcan ball and how have you had to adjust to play that more effectively? Yes, the uh, the
2: Vulcan ball. So, clearly <coughs> we had been playing with the Dura as the main ball for a long time before that. And I would say the Dura, up to this point, has been the best ball, just because, one, everyone's used to it, but it also generally stays in round, is pretty predictable. We had some issues with the quality control with it, not staying in round at times, um, but overall, I would put it as the ball that was most preferred by the pros overall. Um, The Vulcan ball came in, and clearly they've been developing this for a while, and it has some real positives to it. I really... Kind of like how it feels on the paddle. Um, it's easy to see with the green color, um, the spin, the speed, I all don't mind those things. And the only one issue that it has right now, or it seems to have for the first three tournaments, is it does seem to go out of round quite quickly. Um, or it's subject to that, depending on the conditions. Um, I do know that Volcom was working to fix that issue. Um, so we're hopeful that. The balls can stay round, at least for longer. We've been rotating the balls out after every single game. So certainly that does help. It only needs to last, you know, 10 to 20 minutes um, before it's going to be cycled out. Um, So we're all hopeful that the Vulcan ball can continue to be used and improve as time goes along.
0: So you would anticipate them coming out with some sort of variation of the current ball?
2: It's certainly very possible. I know that they're looking into different things they can do. Um, the durability, meaning the out-of-round problem, is something they they recognize that they can improve. And certainly the feedback from the players has been uh, good in some ways, and then in that particular way, it's a little bit lacking. Um, so creating a good ball is not an easy task. Um, we're not saying it is, but <clears throat> clearly they want the feedback. Um, the PPA wants feedback on really anything equipment-related, whether it's paddle testing or Uh, the ball that they use Um, so the players have been vocal in their feedback and I think that's going to help Vulcan create an even better ball interesting I don't know Tyler said that they don't go out around well he might be biased considering he is sponsored
1: by Vulcan I'm just going to point that out who's to say honestly (laughs) Um, do you think that you know I think we have seen an inordinate amount of upsets so far this year would you would you agree with that
2: I guess I'd have to look at past years as well to really say yes or no, but we can say that, yes, there have definitely been some upsets that you would not expect um, in the first three tournaments. It's not like everything has gone according to plan. Sure. Do you think, do you think <coughs>
1: this change of ball is contributing to that at all?
2: I would definitely say it could be a factor. Um, the ball that you play with has a much bigger effect than you would think, especially in the different weather conditions. So you might think, oh, well, you play with – this new ball for a week or two and it's relatively easy to get used to. I mean, look at what the pros did at Nationals or U.S. Open. They they can adjust to the Franklin ball no problem. There was that week last year where we had to have that basically three-day turn turnaround between MLP and Nationals where you're using a, a completely different ball. That being said, I do think that it takes more time to get used to a, using a ball in a variety of conditions, um, whether it's dry, whether it's humid, whether it's cold, uh, whether it's hot. It's not like you can just reprogram the feel you have for the ball in every environment. That takes time, and then also trusting it under pressure. Uh, We've been playing with the Dura Ball for years now. Like we know exactly how it performs in basically every condition, whether it's humid, um, dry, cold, hot, somewhere in between. It's it really does affect the ball, and and you can talk about this as well. It's it changes how you play play the game. It changes how it feels on your paddle. And certain players do better than others um, in different conditions. I mean, somebody like Matt Wright loves when the ball is cold, when it's fast, and he plays well indoors. um, Versus somebody like myself, I like the ball to be a little bit slower. I always play relatively well with the Franklin ball or a soft Dura ball. Um, I feel like it suits my style. So it makes a difference, and I think that's something that's a little bit overlooked when the ball is changed it's you can't get used to it in a week or two because you're not going to be playing with it under pressure in a variety of different conditions.
3: Hmm.
1: Do you think so do you think that's potentially contributing to some of these upsets just because nobody's used this is the first time everybody's played with this ball at the the Hyundai Masters or Mesa with a more sort of slippery court or Desert Ridge? I mean, you know, those were the conditions between those three tournaments were Pretty similar, I'd say. They're all, like, somewhat west coast, dry, desert conditions. Yeah, I would say Mesa
2: was definitely the warmest of those. I When I played outside True. during the day, the ball was definitely the softest, much softer than Desert Ridge or at the Masters. So that did vary a little bit, but we haven't been to somewhere like Florida where it's been really hot and humid and to see how the ball reacts. So it'll be interesting to see... When we do that, how does the ball play? Um, but to answer your question, I do think it, it has something to do with the upsets. Anytime you level the playing field, whether it's changing the ball or changing the paddles or making it really windy, where it's a new condition that not everyone is used to, I think that
1: levels the playing field enough to where the teams that are not favored have a better chance to win. Mm-hmm. One more one more question about the the ball. At least for me, I don't know what you have, Tommy, but. What? How would you, other than the the out of round or uh, versus breaking, how would you compare the way this plays to a dura? And let's say, obviously, we know that conditions is is huge, but in perfect indoor conditions, how would you compare a the Vulcan ball to uh, the the dura? I
2: would say I do have to play with it more to have a really good thorough understanding of it, but here's my take on it in particular conditions because I don't know that you could say perfect conditions because perfect conditions mean a set of conditions so let's just say a colder faster environment so like what you're saying when we play in Minneapolis with the ball how is the ball going to play I would say it's relatively rubbery so it really tends to play fast and rebound quite a bit so that is conducive to aggressive play Um, the spin is quite good so when the ball is cold and it's fast conditions it may play faster than Dura. Maybe not, but I would say it's at least very close. And then if the ball gets very soft, so based on what I played with in Arizona and Mesa outside when in the sun, I would say that it plays actually softer than Dura. So, whatever the conditions are, I feel like they're accentuated when you play with the Vulcan ball. If it's cold, it plays really fast. If it, If it's warm, it plays very slow. So, I'll have to play with it more, but
1: that would be my take on it right now. It seems like it's more weather-dependent. It is more weather-dependent than than the Dura. I would say, yes. I've had a similar experience with faster in cold conditions, slower in warm conditions, but still pretty limited sample size.
2: Yes, limited sample size. And for those of you listening, it might sound a little extreme. like, how much could the ball really affect play? It's really it comes down to reaction time because when you're talking split seconds, if the ball is marginally faster, if it's 5%, 10% faster, when you're talking you know a quarter of a second, that starts to make a difference. And that can be a difference between getting your paddle on the ball or not and a match being won and lost. So that's the reason I feel like the ball is so important as well as something like the power of paddles, et cetera. Okay.
1: Dura in thirty degrees versus dura in hundred degrees in humidity. How much faster as a percentage is the ball coming at you? <sighs> kitchen line to kitchen line. Man, I hope I don't throw a bad estimate out there. It feels to me
2: like twenty percent faster. I, I could that could be a little much. Maybe it's closer to fifteen percent, but to me it feels significant. And to me, twenty percent would be in the neighborhood of of what it feels like.
1: Yeah. That's fair. I I I was thinking a quarter, like it is. It's yeah. a huge difference between thirty to. I, I feel like over eighty-five, it's all the same, pretty much. Yeah, but yeah, the the conditions are enormous, and how the ball plays, no doubt.
0: Do you want to take this opportunity to blame your loss to Tardio and Andre on the ball?
2: Well, I don't want to to blame anything. <laughs> it's a, a first thing should be to uh, congratulate those guys on playing a great match. I mean they came out with a good game plan. They, they played aggressive. Um, they played inspired. They were enthusiastic, energetic from the start. Um, clearly we're known to be slow starters. And I think part of their game plan was knowing that and trying to take advantage of that. Um, so, you know, you're playing a best of three pickleball match and the team that comes out, um, with energy and, and catches a, a few shots early can really carry that into the rest of the game and the rest of the match. Um, so, uh, Credit to them for coming out and, and playing that well. And they not only beat us, but they carried that momentum into the next match. Because a lot of times you can have a letdown after you have a big win and then lose in the quarterfinals. And they beat Pat and Jay. And not only that, they went on to beat Riley and Thomas in the semis. So mm-hmm. um, they had a great run. Um, they both played well, and uh, well done to them.
0: So in retrospect, you walk off to court. You and Ben are talking. Do you sort of attempt to diagnose what what went wrong, how you should have played it differently? oh
2: there's no talking there's no chance (laughs) (laughs) there's no talking uh at that point it's more like a funeral Uh, (laughs) but uh certainly you can learn things from certain matches and i don't feel like this one in particular is one that we need to review we kind of know what happened and uh what we would need to do better next time certain matches it could be a little bit more of a strategy change so if you think of back when Riley and Matt used to play together, they would literally completely change sides for a whole match where Riley would play one match on the right and then he played play the next one on the left, which really drastically changes how the match is going to flow. So mm-hmm. depending on the outcome of the match, we would definitely have a discussion. Hey, what did you like? What did you not like in this formation against this team? Um, in a matchup like that, you're going to have more discussion versus a match like this, uh, you're probably going to have less discussion.
0: You ever have a loss, and you and Ben go back to the house and throw it up on the TV and watch it back and talk through it? That has never once happened. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh,
2: at that point, you're both competitive, and it hurts to lose, and you need to take a little time. You, I mean, you're not going to let it affect your week, but for the next hour or two, you're you know not happy. So right. you kind of let it sit for a bit, and then after that, you can start to think about what you could do better next
0: time. All right, since you won your first PPA Mesa 2021, do you have off the top of your head all the teams you've lost to since then in men's devils?
2: I you
1: could, and Ben I, as a team.
0: I could get pretty close,
2: I think. Well, we do, so go Oh, ahead. you do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, so this
2: is an exam of types. Yeah. So including that tournament in Mesa. Sure. So we lost that day in the quarterfinals to Tyler and Spencer.
0: Right, so when you win that first title, you came back around.
2: We came back around. You lost dip. to Tyler and Spencer. Yes, not the team that people picked as the one to, to take us down in that tournament, but fortunately we had that second chance to come back around. So the rest of that year, Ben played quite a bit with Matt that year. So I'm trying to remember if we lost at all in that in that 2021 year. I'll come back to that. But for 2022, we lost four times, I believe. Or no, six times. We lost six times. Uh, We lost four times to Matt and Riley in that year. Uh, Our other two losses would have come to JW and Dylan um, on that windy day in Florida. And the other one, there was one other one, would have been Tyson and Jay at Nationals, where we also had the opportunity to come back and double dip. So those were our six losses. That year, the following year, would have been last year. We lost four times. We lost the first match of the year to Philip Locklear and Ben Newell. Mm -hmm. Also not a team that you would expect us to lose to. Uh, They routed us in two games in the second round. Uh, We lost to... Pat and DJ in the quarterfinals of Seattle. So they played a good match there. We lost to JW and Dylan when I had my bruised Achilles in the final of Dekea. Excuses, making excuses. Just facts, just facts. They beat us fair and square because I walked down on the court that day, and that means you're ready to play. Uh, and then our other uh, loss of that year was Wyatt Stone and Jame martinez Vic. And obviously this past weekend we lost to Andre Escu and Gabe Tardia. So that is our only loss this year, unless I missed any in 2021, which I very mal- very may way- very well
1: may have. Um, I think that concludes my list. Do you remember the Vegas Austin Gridley, Mario Barrientos match? I do. Yes, the
2: wait. Was that 2021? It was. I think 20- that was 21. It was 21. I, for some reason, I thought that was in 2020. But yes, you are correct. Okay, we. Ha- oh, I could. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, because it was a PPA. It was at the Plaza Hotel, but it was classified as a PPA. So you have to be right about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jay and Pat never beat you guys. They got really close. No, no, no they, they, did beat, they, they did. They beat did beat us. They beat us in Atlanta. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. I stand correct. 2021 in May. Yes, Atlanta, they beat us. So that would be another team. That was one that was, one. I knew that we had, but I thought that was previous to There's that. one more. There is one more. Riley and Riley and AJ. Yeah. Yes, at Vegas, the Plaza Hotel. Plaza oh, I, the, hotel. Pl- the Plaza Hotel
1: has not been good to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that must have been in 2022. I think that was they ended up getting like a bronze when AJ came in. No, maybe that was I don't remember. He came in sort of last minute and partnered up with Riley for that. Yeah, weekend.
2: he won both, because he won with Jesse and mixed. That was sort of his coming out party. He won men's doubles and mixed doubles that weekend.
1: So what does it take to to beat the team of of Ben and Colin? Like you got some <laughs> you got some some teams that you would consider to be flukes. You have some teams that, you know, maybe on their day they can they can beat you. Or their day and your not day right the flukes being you know a couple of these teams that you wouldn't expect the people that i would say can give you a run and can give you good matches being the riley and matt team the jw and dylan team yeah i guess the main thing is
2: you want to play us on a side court in an early round (laughs) based on that sample set i mean how many of those matches happened on the side court uh, where it was an early round match to where Maybe we go in with low energy, they come out with high energy, and you know, different things can happen, whether it's you know more wind and things of that nature. Um, so that would be the best way to beat us, is avoid center court. The other way, if you look at the one team that has beaten us multiple times in one year, there's only one of those teams on that list, and that's Matt and Riley. They beat us four times in one year, and that was in 2022. Um, they both play a very aggressive style, but they're also – They're also very good counter punchers, but they also understand the game of pickleball well. You can't just go out and swing for the fences without a legitimate understanding of when and where you should attack. Because I think that it's thrown around a lot. Oh, you have to play aggressive to beat Ben and Colin. And I think that's pretty clear. If you're going to try to beat us in a dinking war, I think that you're going to die a very slow death. (laughs) But the ways to be aggressive are not as obvious as the, as you would think. You can't just pull triggers from anywhere and everywhere and hope that it works. Maybe if, if you're certain players, that can work, but I think for the most part, you're going to have to do it in a smarter way. And Riley and Matt are both seasoned veterans when it comes to attacking. And then they complemented each other quite well. So when they beat us, Riley was playing the left, Matt was playing the right. And I think that that really suited both of their styles. And they played basically aggressive high octane pickleball but they did it in a way that, that was Dave Fleming special they did it in a way that was experienced enough to not be dumb about it so it's a very fine balance and I'm not saying it's easy but you need to play aggressive but you need to know what you should be looking for when you're pulling triggers I like it I'll take it I'll accept it so that's what you're gonna do next time you play us i mean i wasn't gonna gonna
1: do anything differently you're gonna talk
2: to matt Wright and say how do i speed up against
1: colin no if 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 i'm gonna win against you guys i'm gonna probably be on the left just pulling everything pretty much
2: there was that one match in
1: vegas yeah me and me and dylan had like four or five match points i think you had i think just one that i can recall. at least six or seven at least six
2: or seven i do remember that it was on dylan he missed in transition it wasn't on you. I mean, Dylan kind
1: of, uh, Dylan got yeah. us there, so.
2: Well, Dylan played very well in that match, but I do recall that you played a lot of left in that match, and you were pulling a lot of triggers, and it was working, and it was on a side court. I will point out that you got that right. You're like, Conor, we really need to be on court 17 right now. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah, when I talk, Connor listens. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that you had our backs against the wall, and we had to come back from, I don't know, it was probably like eight four down in the third something like that and uh yeah you were playing some good left and pulling a lot of triggers
1: so yeah yeah we we talked about this here but like my my game plan was not gonna gonna change one bit after hearing this
2: yes it was just pull <laughs> yeah pull and pull quickly
3: pretty much hey what's up bro hey you into pickleball at all you into pickleball no all right I've got a nice little side hustle going here. I basically just show up at pickleball courts and uh, I bring some products that they might need and I I slang pickleball products. With pickleball being such a hot sport right now, there's a lot of different products coming out and it's hard to keep up with. So I just basically bring the products directly to the customer right here. Hey, hey bro. Hey, you're looking thirsty out there. You need one of these ice shakers? You know, to be honest with you, all I'm really doing is I just subscribe to the pickleball box and it comes straight to my door with all the hottest pickleball gear in here. And it's like $250 worth of stuff. And I get it for 99 bucks. Hey, Donna, I got that new Fila zip-up you were asking about right here. Yeah, that pickleball Fila zip-up. Yeah. Yo, these pickleball junkies, man, once you give them a taste of that new product that they got coming out, they can't get enough of it. Hey, Tom, weren't you asking about some pickleball socks, man? I got some socks right here for brand new. Yo, did y'all need some sunblock? Was somebody asking about some sunblock? Hey, what's up, bro? You want to check out what all I got? Yeah, come check it out, man. Check it out. Wait, wait, wait. Cops, dude. Cops. Cops. Be cool. Be cool. What's up, officer? Good day? Having a good day? Good. All right. Check it out.
0: If you had to choose three drills to do in perpetuity, you could do no other drills. No other drills. These are the only three drills you can ever drill for the rest of your career. (laughs) What are those three drills? And then give a little explanation of what each one is.
2: Okay, well, I'll start with the first, most obvious one, and that is the one that Ben and I do the most, and that's simply going straight up on the sides that we play, so right side for me, left side for Ben, and starting with a dink, and from there, you can really hit anything you want. Um, We don't do Ernie's because it's obvious that you're going to go down the line. And we don't do Lobs just because neither of us Lob very much. Um, And we'd rather focus on some of the other aspects of the game. But certainly you could do it with Lobs. Uh, You want to work somewhat cooperatively, but at the same time push each other. So let's say you speed the ball up and the other person pops it way high. You don't have to take them out on that one. You can kind of keep the rally going. Um, But you want to do everything from that point when the Dink rally starts meaning speed-ups, counters, blocks, different types of dinks, trying to get each other off balance, Um, because a lot of pickleball is attacking straight ahead and countering attacks that are hit from straight ahead. So that's why Ben and I really like that drill. Uh, You can really test each other, and you also get plenty of dink practice. Um, Certainly dinking cross-court is valuable, but I think that at a certain point, you want to focus more on the attacks and less on the dinks, and certainly... Once in a while, we'll dink cross-court, but I think that takes the attacks out of play a little bit too much um, because you don't attack cross-court that much. Um, so that would be my number one pick on drill
1: that you could do. So this is, that's a, basically like a dink to speed up drill. Like you're playing skinny singles straight ahead. It's basically skinny
2: singles straight ahead from the kitchen line, and it's somewhat cooperative in the sense you don't have to jam it down their throat if they hit it really high. Of course, you could play it that way, but that's the general... Mm -hmm. drill right there Uh, another one that i really like is one person starts at the kitchen line other person starts at the baseline and a lot of people play this as a 7-11 game where if the person at the baseline can win seven points before the other person at the kitchen line can win 11 points then they win the game Uh, i don't usually keep score with this but just feeding the ball in as it would be a return. that person drops drives whatever they want playing it out on half court it's essentially skinny singles but one person starts up at the kitchen line Um, so you might say, well, why don't you just play skinny singles? Um, that might very well be my last drill because you get serves and returns in that scenario. Um, but the reason I like these first two without the serve and return is you get more reps and you get more reps of the things that, of the shots that I think are more important. Not that the serve and return are not important. Um, but I would say the third shot, fourth shot, and the ones after that are the ones, that are the most vital at the highest level. Um, You don't see a lot of points won simply on the serve and return, but you got to have adequate serve and return. And just for continuity, I guess I would just go with the last one being skinny singles, Um, just because you get everything in that scenario and skinny singles meaning you can do it in all directions. So when you move, you score. So some points are going to be played cross court. Some are going to be played down the line. You start zero, zero. Um, Let's say I win the first point in the right court. I move to the left court. I serve down the line. I'm now playing the left side, the other person's playing the right side, you go straight ahead, I score again, I move back to the right side. And then same for the other person. If they score when they're serving, they move, that way you have all four directions, cross court in both directions and
1: down the line in both directions. So to summarize, you've got skinny singles from the kitchen, skinny singles where one person's at the kitchen and one person's at the baseline, and then just skinny singles. Yep. So skinny singles.
2: (laughs) Essentially, yes. (laughs) I got you. Because if you're limited by three, you want something that you can get a lot of reps with the most important things, but then also everything. Um, Of course, there are other drills that I would want to do.
0: If you have four people out there, though, is there another drill that you would do with with four?
2: I don't think drilling with four people is particularly useful. Now, playing points, yes, that's the only way you can... Right, you might as well just play. play. Yeah, you might as well just play, but... I think actually when you drill, one versus one is the most useful way because you're hitting every shot. You have to be active and engaged on every single shot. And you just get the most repetitions, the most flow to the game if you're 1v1. I do think that two versus one drills have their place as well. So there will be times where I'll have somebody on my side dinking with Ben cross court, and then he'll attack me down the line. And then same um, on my side. Um, I'll have two people on the other side dinking with me cross court and then I would attack Ben straight up. So a drill like that can be useful um, because you're still getting a lot of reps but you're doing something that you need a third person for. I don't think that there are a lot of four person drills that I myself would personally want to do other than just simply play points.
1: Got yeah it. I think the the three person drill can be good for like speed ups like yes cr- dinking cross court is is great right but when somebody leaves the ball up if you're thinking one on one, you're just speeding it up to an empty court. Like it's good to have that third person there. It's tough to, tough to arrange, I suppose. But yes, there's, there's some merit to that one.
2: Yeah. I like that one. We do that one every once in a while. And definitely speeding up without any sort of response is very different than having somebody over there actively moving. And you really got to be good with your spots, which is a big part of
0: attacking. Mm hmm. Uh, You mentioned that you've replaced Ben on the PPA Pro Player Council, which is responsible for coming up with new rules and decisions like, for example, the new serving rule, which was recently implemented. Um, I had heard rumblings, and this is, you know, sometimes players just say this out of frustration, but they were like, yeah, the new serve rule. That's because Colin and Ben wanted it that way. <laughs> uh, but talk well, they, they about must think that, that
2: we just uh, we have all the power, huh? <laughs> yeah. If right. Ben and Colin want it. You know, overnight it's implemented.
0: I mean, that <laughs> is kind of I mean, partially <laughs> an assumption that a lot of people make is like you and Ben are the golden boys of the PPA, and if you want something to happen and you apply enough pressure, it'll happen. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think that is like a general perception. Like people tend to act as if that's the case. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a gross exaggeration. The, the PPA is is a professional tour, and <coughs> clearly they want to respect the opinions of some of their top players. But well, back in the Mesa days, like when you won your first title, like you know you could you could pull some strings, and make some stuff. I back. mean, yeah, of course they're going to have they're going to give more weight to certain people's opinions than others.
2: But Ben and I are not the only ones at the top. If Anna Lee and her mother give a suggestion, I feel like that's weighted as well. Um, the, the top players that have been around a long time as well. So someone somebody like Catherine or Jesse, that's they've been playing the PPA for a long time. I feel like their suggestions are also heeded by the PPA. Um, they'll hear them out and decide whether that's the, the right course of action. And then, of course, the majority. If everyone's saying, hey, there's this one paddle that we really feel like is a problem we'd like to make sure it's legal and, and I want you to test it, then I think the PPA starts to listen to something like that. So I think there are a lot of different ways that you can make the PPA pay attention to what you're saying. And I do think it's a, it's a good step that we have this pro player council. And I try to represent the players, not just myself when I'm on that. Um, I'll talk to, to different players and, and get their take on it. So the serve rule, for example, uh, talk to Federico or, or Pablo and say, hey, what do you guys think of this rule? Do you think that we could improve it? Do you like it the way it is? What are the pros? What are the cons? I'm still open to suggestions and certain things that we could potentially improve even more. Um, because I know some people are a fan of this new serve rule and some are not. And the thinking behind the rule was not to completely take away the aggressive nature of the surf. Because I think a lot of people thought that. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, well... Colin Ben don't like facing huge serves, so they're going to change the rules so that they don't have to face them. The reality is the serves are still almost as big, I would say. I mean, if you look at somebody like Declan James, they're still cranking the serve. It's not affected it's not the game to where it's a powder puff that's coming in at you. The objective was to make the enforcement easier for the refs so that they could get better at calling ones that were either murky or clearly not good. Um, because when you can toss the ball up, it really increases the window that the ref has to look for. So, for example, if the ball is tossed, as you could with with the old rule, over your head, the player can hit the ball at his chest, or he can let it drop to his stomach, to his knees, whatever. There's a large window where he can choose to hit it, which makes it very difficult for the ref to determine, okay, where did he actually hit it? Versus if you minimize that window, which we sort of did uh, with this new rule, you can only toss the ball so high. So how could you really get around the rule? It's much harder. Certainly, there are players that are pushing the envelope, but you don't have any flagrant offenses where there were times where you're like, dude, you're serving from your shoulders. Mm -hmm. I don't think we've had really any serves like that. Um, And that was one of the main objectives. We want to make it easier on the refs and at the same time not give any player... A huge advantage by you know pushing the boundaries of the rule and of course you don't want the serve to rule the game and in the actual usa pickleball rulebook it says the serve is not meant to be a weapon now maybe that's outdated maybe it's not but that's the way that it reads right now and i think part of the reason pickleball is fun to watch is there are rallies and again i'm not saying the serve can't be aggressive i think that players can still take advantage of the serve when somebody's unwinding the stack hit a big serve and have the opportunity to shake and bake, get some errors. You see plenty of errors still being hit on the return of serve. So I just want to make sure that it stays within reason and we're not missing four or five returns a game because I don't think that makes
1: for good viewership. I like it. Well, Colin, <laughs> Well, <laughs> I've got I've Well, got my Zane's got some here, things he wants to say. I've got my opinions, and it's not about whether or not the <laughs> serve should be a weapon or not. I do, I do think I need to push back on making this easier to enforce because I, I think we've actually made it more difficult to enforce the serve rule. Now, theoretically, like, we've added one additional thing that a referee needs to, to look at. They now need to see whether you are tossing the ball upwards, but we've eliminated the requirement to look at where their belly button is, right, or where the contact point is. If you drop it straight downwards the enforcement should be... There's no way the ball should be made contact with above the level of the waist, right? I think that was the intent. But now you have players who are kind of like unbending, they're straightening their legs as the ball is going up. There's a little bit of an upwards motion. I think that's just as difficult to enforce whether the ball is being released upwards as it is to enforce where the contact point is.
2: So I would say that... Anytime you're going to attach the serve rule to a body part, which it's really hard to avoid unless you went to a drop serve. Anytime you do that, the rule is going to be subjective and it's sure. going to be hard to enforce to some extent. I think that you've made it easier because the harder thing for the refs was where is he making contact actually? Now, I don't mind so much if there's a little bit of upward motion to the ball. And I think this has been loosened up a little bit mm-hmm. as far as the enforcement Um Connor Pardot and Don Stanley have been communicating about, hey, how much is too much? I mean, is it a true release slash drop? Can there be no upward motion at the Masters? There were a lot of um, early calls like that, and I think they loosened it up because they realized when any, when, when any player releases the ball, there's going to be a little bit of natural upward release. So allow them to do that and really allow the refs to focus more on where they're making contact. So If I were the ref, I would not focus so much on the upward motion. I would more focus on are they striking it above the top of their hip or are they not? Just look at that. And because you have the threat of upward motion, I feel like most players are not going to get too out of control with it. It's more like it's having a law that's a threat that somebody might enforce, but it's not often enforced. I feel like. That's going to limit players enough to where the refs can now look at that one thing, which is where is somebody making contact? Are they making contact too high, or are they good? And that makes the rule easier to enforce. So that would be how I would like to see it enforced.
1: But isn't that what they were supposed to be doing before we changed the diff the contact point? Before it was belly button, now it's top of the waist. Shouldn't they just have been looking at where the contact point was before because all the other elements stay the same upwards motion all that stuff
2: yeah so the contact point yes but the ball is now traveling from the opposite direction which makes a big difference because sure, you're
1: traveling upwards as opposed to dropping downwards from somebody he's throwing it up
2: yes because if you're releasing it upwards then the ball is going to then travel back downwards and the player can basically choose at that point whether to hit it high or not versus the other way knowing that they can't really propel the ball too far up. If there was no limit to how far they could throw it up, then yes, it would be identical. But because there's that threat of too much upward motion, it's not the same. Because now the ball's traveling from somewhere that would be legal, essentially close to your knees or slightly higher, to somewhere that may be illegal. Versus before, it was starting somewhere that was illegal, high, and moving to somewhere that might be legal or would
1: be legal. That's why I feel like it's different. Okay. Was the was the uh, drop serve batted around at the, in the pro council at all, and and why why this as opposed to drop serve when I think the drop serve does eliminate a lot more subjectivity than this rule?
2: Agreed, it was definitely something that was kicked around, and I think the main reason it was not adopted was we didn't like the optics of it. Um, when you're dropping a pickleball, it just doesn't bounce all that high and. I don't love how that would look to viewership, especially new viewership on TV. Like, pickleball already sometimes looks low-level enough where now you're dropping the ball to hit it. I mean, the, the USA Pickleball, in part, put that rule in for the people that really struggle with getting the serve in play. So I think the optics were the main reason that was avoided. Although, for the Masters, I suggested as an alternative to the new rule if people were really struggling with it, they could use the drop serve at the pro level. That was something I was a proponent of. Um, Ultimately, they decided not to do that, but the drop serve was definitely a legitimate option, and like you said, it definitely eliminates the
1: subjectivity. Mm -hmm. How many drop serves have you hit in your career? I mean, not in in real matches, probably zero, I'm going to guess.
2: In real matches, I can't remember ever hitting one. In practice, when it was first adopted where you could do it, I experimented with it a little bit. Probably you know several dozen times, a couple dozen times, and then you realize I can hit the ball higher out of my hand than I can if I hit a drop serve so what's right. the point um so definitely
1: something I've experimented with, but I decided not to use fair. I think you can make the drop serve look interesting if you put your body weight into it and step into it um I just don't know how many how many pros have. Of- have tried that so i'm a i'm personally a, like given the fact that we've gotten rid of all this other stuff like i'm i'm drop serve fan you're a drop serve fan now i'm, I'm a drop serve fan because i don't like subjective <laughs> <You're> <laughs> rules i don't like subjective rules you went from zane saw to uh to drop serve <laughs> well yeah once we decided that we don't want the serve to be a weapon let's at least make objective rules i would be in for a drop
2: serve i i honestly it would take away the subjectivity but I do worry about the optics a little bit. That would be my only misgiving.
1: I'll show you a cool serve next time we, okay, next let's time do, we play. Let's
2: do it. Because I do remember P- Tyson at some point posted something where he's hitting drop serves. I think it was like the year that the drop serve was yeah, allowed. Everyone was like, oh, God, everyone, everyone's crazy. Like, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, Tyson's got this new drop serve. It's going to be killer. And then I think that he did it for like one tournament and then it turned out that it wasn't the, the best thing for him. So he just went traditional. Yeah.
1: yeah. But I'm I look forward a, to seeing this. this I have really a hard cutoff. You guys can keep, keep talking. I got to go tour my wedding venue. Sorry. You know, so,
2: priorities. Jenny would
1: kill you if you weren't there. I've got a couple text messages from her as we speak. <laughs> so I'll let you guys at it. Uh, Colin? Good stuff. Drop serves rule.
0: <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, all right, Zane departed, but it sounds like you have some sort of announcement around what you're going to be doing on the consulting side of things.
2: Yes, it's something that Ben and I are both excited about, and I can't talk about, too much just yet, um, but we do have some exciting an- announcements coming up in the near future on helping pickleball facilities um, with design and consulting, that sort of stuff. It's something that I've been interested in doing for a long time. I think it's something the pickleball space really needs. Um, so we're going to have some exciting announcements um, on that soon.
0: You guys should open up your own facility.
2: <laughs> I don't know that I would want to run my own facility.
3: You hey, put it's, someone it's, in place. You it's just put your just, name on it. It's
2: so much... Work on a daily, weekly basis that I don't necessarily feel like I would want to do that, at least right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that helping people get off on the right foot is something that I could see myself doing for a long time.
0: Yeah. And then you've got Pickleball 360, and it's my Pickleball coach?
2: Yes. Those are companies that I have co-founded. So Pickleball 360 was founded by myself, Ben Deckel, and our videographer, And those are online, um, subscription videos. Um, so we've been producing those for about three years now and my pickleball coach is, well, they started in golf. Um, but then they went into the soccer space and now the pickleball space and essentially it's allowing people to turn in videos of themselves in a systematic way and having the coaches or coaching teams analyze them, give them feedback and having them, um, have a path to improve in that way. So that's a company I'm a co-founder in. Um, It's definitely starting to take off and they're doing some great work behind the scenes, got some great partnerships. Um, So those are two companies that are something that I see myself doing beyond my playing days. And I do realize I'm not going to play pickleball forever. Um, Certainly I enjoy it, but there are other ventures that I have an interest in and I would like to contribute to pickleball in those ways.
0: Right. Ben, Ben said something similar. Is there any like golden idea that you guys toss around it's like okay as soon as we're done competing or at least competing as much this is an idea we want to pursue
2: i think this this consulting um announcement that we'll have um before too long um would be in that category it's something that we both feel feel has a lot of potential um we both really enjoy that sort of work it's it's passive but you can be as involved as you want it to be Um, Another thing that, to me, would be really interesting to do that I've been working on a lot recently is educating not so much players, but educating coaches a little bit better because the Pickleball Teaching Guidebook has not had a remake to it in quite some time. And I feel like there's a lot of bad information out there uh, that people receive from coaches. Um, There's a lot of good information out there as well, but when you have bad information out there, it's hard to determine what is good and what is bad. So, I am definitely going to have something on that very soon as well. Um, I see the importance of educating the coaching staff as something that could have a real ripple effect, not just here in the United States, but also internationally. If you could get that out to a new developing country that don't have any pickleball coaches right now and get them started on the right foot, I think that that could have a really exciting effect.
0: Got it. Okay. So between the coaching that you do see, a lot of these guys doing instructional YouTube content. What do you think are some of like the biggest misconceptions that are perpetuated by coaches and these instructional creators? <laughs> that you think are just like, no, that's that's wrong. Uh, well, actually, I was talking to my social media manager recently.
2: We're going to do a myth busting series. Oh, I like and that. And I don't really want to uh, to say anything right now, I and then get the and, ideas and, and then somebody not so much give it away, but somebody's going to be like, oh, you're picking on me specifically. You looked at my video, and you're like, you're just dead wrong about that. And I'm not trying to single anybody out. I'm just trying to get more people the right information. So. I think that that is a series that you should look out for and, and definitely can help a lot of people because there are a few things that I feel like are perpetuated regularly that are just not correct.
0: Give me one example.
2: One example. Uh, moving with your partner. So when you move with your partner versus relative to the ball, you don't know where your partner's going to hit. So I'll give you an example. You're at the kitchen line beside your partner. All four players at the kitchen line. Your partner is pulled wide for a dink. So Ben goes out to the left side, hits a backhand dink, a routine backhand dink. I know he's going to dink it back cross court. I mean, the ball's too low. It's pretty clear that he's not going to attack it. Why should I waste my time and energy to move with my partner, quote unquote, towards the center of the court, towards my backhand side, when I know the ball is going to appear in just a moment cross court in all likelihood versus moving with the ball most people are taught to move with their partner now that can sometimes be correct if ben's about to hit the ball down the line so he's about to hit an an attack straight ahead yes i want to shift towards the center a little bit because now i'm responsible for the center as being across from the ball but It's relative to the ball. It's not relative to your partner. Don't move towards your partner unless you know the ball is going to be in a specific location, namely straight ahead from them and cross court from you. When if he's wide for that dink and he hits it back cross court, I'm able to keep my head more still. I'm able to anticipate and track the ball better And be in better position simply by holding my position. I'm not saying you have to be a statue, but you don't need to follow your partner when they go and get a wide dink. I think a lot of people are taught you need to move with your partner, and it starts to look ridiculous when there's just a normal dink rally going back and forth. Like Ben's rallying with Federico, how ridiculous would it look if I took two hurried steps towards the center every time Ben went out wide for the ball? The the top players, they just don't do that. Right. Now, like I said, there are exceptions to that, and certainly when your partner attacks, there are different things you want to do, but I would say that would be a really big one and something that I would like to expand on more in the future.
0: I like it. We can end it there. All right. Thanks for coming on.
2: Yes, thanks for having me.